Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Man on the Run exposes a shocking true story of corruption and betrayal that shook an entire nation's financial stability. It follows Jolo, a mysterious businessman and a playboy, as he masterminds a scheme to exploit a sovereign wealth fund in Malaysia called 1MDB. With the collaboration of Prime Minister Najib Razak, Lowe funnels billions of dollars into global bank accounts to fuel his extravagant lifestyle, including Hollywood parties and so much more. This is a terrific documentary film for a lot of reasons, not the least of which it is a true story about financial misconduct on a global scale and really calls into question just who runs the world but also told in such a way that is relatable, understandable, and having to navigate a lot of very complex information. We're joined today by the director and executive producer of this wonderful film, Man on the Run, and that would be Cassius Michael Kim. Cassius, welcome to Film School Radio. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I really want to know how you got onto this story, because it's something that I kind of remember there's some part of my brain that says oh i do recall but not really that in any degree of detail what puts you onto this you know i think there are a lot of people who can kind of share that same similar reaction that you just mentioned uh people who've heard little vestiges of the tendrils of the story that reach out everywhere for me it was a similar situation but i really have to give credit to the fantastic book billion dollar whale by Bradley Hope and Tom Wright, which is kind of the encyclopedia of 1MDB matters, at least up until a certain point. As you know, this is a story that still is navigating its way around the world, around the court system, and with our main character still on the run, so to speak. But primarily, it was just, it was kind of this um, shock that a story this vast just hadn't registered in the social consciousness, in the, in the zeitgeist, so to speak, and wondering how something that touches upon Hollywood, Wall Street, international foreign policy, with these ridiculous numbers, billions upon billions of dollars, uh, was a story that more people didn't know about. So, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, that kind of story resonates, because then you're like, well, if no one's really done a good job of telling the story, maybe I should give a crack at it. And also the lack of accountability, I think, uh, especially in regards to the main players. Um, that was something as someone who's interested in justice, uh, you definitely, that perks your ears up a little bit, you know? Just to kind of give some parameters around the scope of this story, Malaysia, I don't know if it's considered a first world country, maybe a second world country. I think would be more of the slot you would put it in. An emerging economy, there's a lot of things about Malaysia that are dynamic in a kind of a newer economy that could be a player in terms of raising the standard of life in their country. It's sort of that club that if you're not in, you're on the receiving end of bad things, right? If you're a first world country, God bless you. The world's your oyster. If you're not in that realm, you are oftentimes the victim of things like this. Is that a fair way to put it? Uh, I don't know. Um, I think 
that can be the characterization, but then you see, you know, within just my lifetime, there have been so many of these financial scandals, mm -hmm. and most of them originate out of the first world, right? Like Enron, uh, the SNL crisis of the 80s, Sam Bateman Freed and FTX most recently, yeah. um, Bernie Madoff. So it's yeah. tough to characterize it as a second or third world condition. I, I think for me, the lens was more about capitalism. Uh, especially late stage capitalism and the circumstances that kind of allow these forces already in power to continually marginalize and exploit you know those at the bottom to benefit those at the top and keep those people in power. You said it much better than I did. I, I agree with you. And there's one other crisis because I, I you know, going back to the the financial collapse of Greece a few years ago, right? Yeah. And there was a similarity. There's a thread that runs through that those two stories, this one and that one is Goldman Sachs. Yeah. So let's talk about just sort of let's start about the overview of one MDB and what it was set up theoretically to do sure. and the involvement of the players like Goldman Sachs and anyone else you want to bring into the conversation. Well, you know, originally it was conceived as a sovereign wealth fund. And I guess this is the idealized version of what this is supposed to be. Um, so many countries around the world, primarily those in the Middle East that have excess funds, right? Because because of oil money, there's excess money that these countries can do whatever they want to with. For example, Saudi Arabia recently started Live Golf and are paying Ronaldo something like $185 million a year to play football in their nascent soccer league, um, I think. <laughs> One of the Middle Eastern governments owns the parking meters in Chicago or something ridiculous like that. So these countries go around the world buying distressed assets or sometimes not distressed assets. You know, I believe the UAE purchased Manchester City Football Club also. There's a sport washing phenomenon happening in, in any regard. These countries with money to burn create sovereign wealth funds to have a place to stash their money to make more than your typical 5% interest. And this idea was presented to the government of Malaysia, specifically the former prime minister Najib Razak by Joe Lowe, who met the family via Najib Razak's stepson Riza Aziz, who he met in London uh, while both were attending school there. Unlike other countries that have excess money, Malaysia didn't have excess money. So to create the sovereign wealth fund, uh, they accrued debt and were actively funneling money that could be used in better ways for the benefit of its citizens into this nascent fund to hopefully achieve long-term gains. Now, the first partnership was with a company, if you can call it that, called Petro Saudi that was established by one of the many princes, quote-unquote, of Saudi Arabia and organized by a couple of fellows out of London who were less than uh <laughs> i don't even know how to describe these guys patrick mahoney and Xavier justo's colleague um i forget his name but these very suspicious gentlemen who didn't really have anything behind them other than this name petro saudi and they created a joint venture based on these oil assets in turkmenistan reportedly valued at 3.5 billion dollars but in actuality worth a mere fraction of that. One MDB gave $1 billion in cash while Petro Saudi put up these so-called significant oil assets 
and we're off to the races yeah. because as soon as they put in the one billion dollars, Joe Lowe and his crony stole seven hundred million that same very same day, and then began spending that on parties in Las Vegas and around the world. Uh, one of Joe Lowe's counterparts, his right hand man, posted on Facebook the day of the bank transfer to say he felt the earth shake. You know, it's all documented how they went on this ridiculous party spree that few people have rivaled in modern history upon the embezzlement of the, the $700 million. Where did Joe Lowe, and that's not his full name. Lotech Joe is his uh, full Malaysian name, I believe. How did he become someone of a player? Uh, he reminds me, by the way, it, in some way, he reminds me a version of George Santos. <laughs> there's a there's an element of this sort of devil may care i'm gonna keep lying until somebody tells me to stop kind of version of of a person that they i feel like they're 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 in that same range of psychosis yeah, I, I like that comparison i gotta tell you mike <laughs> he was uh he's from like a, a rich family right not wealthy but like a, a well-to-do family in malaysia chinese malay um, if you don't know, Malaysia is an extremely segregated country. The majority of Malay population are conservative Muslim, but there are significant communities of Chinese Malay who operate the business sector and the Indian Malays. Uh, and these are all recent immigrants to the country because Malaysia has only been a country for about 65 years. And these disparate communities form the core of the population. The Chinese Malays occupy a very singular place in their society, and I think they just came from a community uh, and a family that just always aspired for more. They sent Jolo to a boarding school called Harrow in London for his secondary education. Harrow brags itself for having educated seven prime ministers of England. After Harrow, Jolo attended UPenn and the Wharton School of Business, like one other very famous... <laughs> scoundrel in modern times <laughs> and during these you know times jolo always figured out that you know, and he figured out a lot earlier than most of us figured out that it's not about the quality of the education you receive it's about the people you meet right like he's gonna harrow with these like the sultan of brunei's kid and the son of the king of jordan and he understands and begins to realize like the power of connection and the power of spectacle. There's a very well-documented time in college where he drops like $70,000 of borrowed money on his 21st birthday party at a, a nightclub in Philadelphia and pays all these people to attend. You know, he, this is just the beginning of his business model, right? So like he sees and makes the connection between society, celebrity, and the power of the people you know. And he just takes that model to Malaysia, which, you know, is, as we discussed earlier, is a, a developing country, yeah. second world country. You have this prime minister who's, you know, actively trying to elevate the level of Malaysia on the world stage. And this guy comes to him and says, hey, we can be like the Middle East. We can be like these rich people. I have all these connections there. Give me this fund to minister and we will just raise our profile, we become players, and, you know, it's a compelling case on the it, surface, right? Like you know. It is. It, it's really, I mean, again, there's something, like I said, I'm going to keep running until somebody stops me. 
and and in the world he managed to master understand better than most he was able to run is been able to run for a long time and there's no shortage of these kind of people we see them all the time now and i i don't know if there's a connection here but oftentimes these people seem to be and you alluded to this kind of uh, strata of wealth and not just of people but of institutions in our world now but it, it seems oftentimes to be about extraction uh, capitalism right palm oil fossil fuel whatever it is it's all about taking and very little about giving back and and that's just not the business model of these people at all I mean, you've said it perfectly, Mike. I don't think uh, there's any thought about contributing positively. It's all about extracting and consolidating. By that same regard, keeping the rest of the people out of that loop, that loop of power and wealth. Yeah. I just, I want to remind our listeners of speaking with Cassius Michael Kim. He is the director of an incredible documentary film. I mean, really, it is, as I said, it's infuriating and very entertaining, by the way. Uh, It's called Man on the Run. And I now want to shift gears here because there are a lot of good people. There's some good players in this story. There's a number of people, and you can, I'll leave it to you to to sort of highlight uh, some of these really, truly brave people. Sure. Uh, I think, you know, Oftentimes with documentaries, the film you get is uh, completely predicated upon who you're able to get access to. And with this film, uh, I certainly would not have been able to make it without the firsthand accounts of the very brave journalists and law enforcement officials who were responsible for uncovering this conspiracy and bringing some measure of accountability to the guilty parties. Uh, You know, I want to shout out Clara Rucastle-Brown who runs the Sarawak Report and was one of the first people in the world to really bring attention to the story by noticing that the government of Malaysia was trying to show the Wolf of Wall Street uh, to every school child in Malaysia, which is patently ridiculous because it's a very explicit R-rated film. And Malaysia is an extremely conservative Muslim country. So why could this be happening? Oh, it's because her son financed the movie, The Wolf of Wall Street, with stolen money from 1MDB. Boom. But Claire was the first person to make that connection. And after Claire, you know, Xavier Justo, the whistleblower from Petro Saudi, without whose data he had taken from Petro Saudi, they would have never connected Joe Lowe to this case. Bradley Hope, formerly of the Wall Street Journal who got in when national and international media was alerted to this scheme, Hokai Tad of the Edge in Malaysia. Um, all these people risked their lives and their safety and were threatened and sometimes imprisoned um, to bring truth to the surface. And of course, you know, our American FBI officials, I, mean, I, I think the, the best thing about me, for me, in telling this story, or one of the best things at least, was, you know, there's a lot of, dialogue around the role of law enforcement in our society, and rightfully so. And I think there's a lot of nuance to these issues that have been covered in the last few years. Uh, But this is a story where it is really black and white, and it's not often black and white in the world. But without the FBI, without the DOJ getting involved, I think you would have never seen any measure of accountability in the story because the Malaysian officials have been hamstrung and shut down by Najib Razak and his cronies. So it was absolutely essential for the FBI, specifically Charles O'Neill, David Smith, who were 
based in Kuala Lumpur as illegal attache officers and were sending information back to America to Bill McMurray and Rob Hughling and their international corruption squad and working with Kyle Franey and Uli and the DOJ to bring the largest civil asset forfeiture case in the history of the Justice Department. I mean, without that, uh, Malaysia might still be in a completely authoritarian state. That's a monumental thing to consider. Now, you know, there's been a massive shift in government that I, I personally didn't think was possible. You know, like Anwar Ibrahim becoming prime minister. When I interviewed Anwar, uh, I was feeling very hopeless for state of Malaysia. But Anwar, in that moment, he gave me hope. Uh, and, you know, that's something that doesn't happen very often. Well, uh, well, he himself had been imprisoned for his political work activity. And up to almost 20 years of his life as a political prisoner in his own country. And yet he just never gave up. And to see that kind of belief in the possible yeah. in the face of insurmountable odds, uh, it was inspiring. It, uh, that's the word I would use. That was hearing him speak with the kind of clarity that he spoke about, the way he uh, talked about his love for Malaysia, just everything about him, his bearing, the fact that he educated himself in the most dire of situations in, in prison, enriched himself at, at his own hand, uh, is uh, was just a remarkable story about him. I just fell in love with him. I don't know if you mentioned Xavier uh, Justo. Did you? I don't I can remember. But... Uh, yeah, quick shout out. You know, Xavier was the number three uh, of Petro-Saudi in London. And he had a falling out with his colleagues there. Um, Tyrek Obeid was, quote unquote, businessman. One of these other people who went to boarding school in Hobnob with the rich and famous. Uh, he and his colleague Patrick Mahoney started this shell company called Petro Saudi, uh, to which they enlisted Xavier Justo to be the number three. Xavier soon discovered that there wasn't really much to this company, especially once 1MDB got involved. After a falling out with his colleagues, he left the company but made a copy of their server. And when the story popped up in the news and he saw that there was more to it than just the surface level uh, malfeasance that he had detected. Uh, he reached out to Claire Castle Brown and Hokai Taught at the Edge and negotiated release of this data upon which discovery, you know, Claire and Hokai Taught, they were able to connect the dots and see that that initial $1 billion that Malaysia via 1MDB had sent into the joint venture with Petro Saudi, 700 million was immediately diverted to Jolo's personal accounts. And without that smoking gun, I think that case might not have gone anywhere from there because it was actively being suppressed by Najib Razak and his government. It's often said about stories like this that it's it's unbelievable on some level that that this level of corruption, this uh, sort of uh, wanton disregard for law and all the rest of it is it's hard to fathom but it's also not all that unheard of and we we as at the beginning of our conversation we talked about many examples of that and i'm sure right now as we sit here today in the first part of 2024 second day of uh, 2024 that that stories like this are happening all over but it never, ever stops becoming relevant to be able to reveal them, to understand them, and hopefully, moving forward, not make the same mistakes again. A truth is always stranger than fiction, I like to say. I think we live in a world where the conditions for this type of fraud to happen are ripe because of the rampant inequality, 
the rampant consolidation of wealth and power at the top. There is no accountability so oftentimes, and there are no regulations. There are no safeguards protecting people. I mean, this money should have gone to the Malaysian taxpayers. Like the average yearly salary in Malaysia is less than $20,000. And a great majority of people subsist on much less than that because that's not the mean salary, you know? Like, so as you see in the film, we spend so much time with people in Malaysia who are so busy trying to take care of the day to day, who are struggling to make ends meet, to pay for, you know, housing, food, raising their children, they have no time to think about these things. And we see this play out in our own country. You know, when the struggle for shelter and food consume your day to day, how are you supposed to care about how your government is structured, about what the people in charge are doing? You just let these things happen because you don't have the bandwidth to deal with it. And that's what these people prey upon. This is yeah. how the wealthy stay wealthy, how the rich stay rich, how the powerful don't give up their power. I mean, I think we all have to be educated about why the conditions exist around us. And as you mentioned, it is something we can fix, but where is the will to act, right? Like, where are our representative officials? You see people in your film who who are are unwilling to accept that as as reality, and uh, yeah, and, and and that's that's what we need. And education, we need uh, uh, to get people beyond the day-to-day -day life of trying to find food and shelter. Thank you so much for your work here. Again, it's a film that rewards you for essentially paying attention. I recommend seeing it a couple of times because there's so much in, in not only in the detail, but it really focuses you on the bigger picture here, which is you did a remarkable job with Man on the Run. So Cassius Michael Kim executive producer and director of Man on the Run, premiering on January 5th here on Netflix. Be looking for it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate your time, man. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Thank you.